All right, looks like we are live. Welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie and I am your host for this important show on all things dispensationalism. It is a privilege to have Pastor Tommy McMurtry here with me again for this comprehensive program. Pastor Tommy is pastor of Liberty Baptist Church in Rock Falls, Illinois. He has joined me about a year ago for a two-part series on eternal security. If you haven't yet seen those videos, please check the description box for their relevant links and also a link to my guest's YouTube channel. Pastor, thank you uh, again for giving uh, me your time for this important discussion. I appreciate you having me on. I always enjoy these discussions and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this subject that's very interesting to me. Amen. I'm excited for this. I know there's lots in the audience that are excited for this, and I can't think of anybody better to have on to discuss uh, all things dispensationalism. So I've got about two hours worth of questions and points of discussion here, which means this may turn into another series of programs. For this reason, I am going to get right into it. Firstly, to the audience, please tag me with your questions, your objections, and I'll do my best to incorporate them into the discussion for uh, Pastor Tommy to engage and address. So the first question I want to ask uh, Pastor Tommy that I believe will help set the foundation for the bulk of the show is what exactly is dispensationalism and what's the difference between hyper dispensationalism and just regular dispensationalism? Yeah, so dispensationalism, it's basically a system of theology that helps you understand um, how to interpret the different scriptures. It's important if you understand, if you're reading a passage, um, you know, when God told Noah to build a boat, that God was telling Noah to build the boat. That doesn't mean we have to. Obviously, that was something very specific for a specific time in history and for a specific person. Um, when God gave the law to Israel and he gave things like the dietary laws and he gave them the sacrifices and all those ordinances, that those were simply for Israel. They're not something that we're supposed to do today. Uh, things have changed over time. There's no doubt about that. And whether you are dispensational or replacement theology, we would all acknowledge that there are some things that were different during the Old Testament period, things that were uh, temporary. and But when Jesus Christ came, a lot changed. So the big question is what changed? And that is a legitimate question. Uh, how do we interpret all these different scriptures? Those are legitimate questions. And some people uh, subscribe to dispensationalism. Now, there's a lot of different types of that out there. But um, most people, when they uh, say they're dispensational, that is their way of saying, I don't do the sacrifices anymore. I don't read the passage in Genesis where it says not to eat the tree in the midst of the garden. And then in my garden at home, I don't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. No, that was for Adam and Eve. So um, a lot, I think there's a lot of honest dispensationalists out there, uh, but I do believe there's a lot of mistakes in uh, that you can expect to find from somebody who claims to be dispensational. And so um, while I would use a term more like replacement theology or something like that, um, you know, they I, there's a lot of forms of that as well. So at the end of the day, what it comes down to is dispensationalism is something I think most people hang on to to preserve their pre-trib and pro-Israel doctrine. And I believe 
that anyone who is pre-trib and anyone who is pro-Israel currently during this time is going to definitely go into your typical dispensational beliefs uh, to defend those positions. And I believe those things can be easily disproven. Thank you very much, uh, Pastor Tommy, for that response. For those unfamiliar with you know, what, what some might consider replacement theology, a verse that comes to mind for me is Matthew 21, 43, especially to those that are anti-replacement theology. Can you kind of just touch on or, or speak to this passage where Jesus says, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Yeah, so if, um, if you go listen to my series on the book of Mark, um, when I was going through Mark's account of the gospel, one of the most interesting things when I did that study was the, what is it we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. I think that's one of the most least talked about things in theology. If you go and you read that story and you look at every verse that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, go back and look at those passages. It will give you a better understanding of what was going on on that day. Jesus, when he came on that triumphal entry, he was fulfilling uh, prophecies from Isaiah, prophecies from Malachi about how uh, he was going to suddenly come and he was going to go into the temple and he was going to purify the sons of Levi. And when you go back and you study those passages, you understand Jesus came to Israel looking for fruit. He had, he had prophesied back in Isaiah, and I can't remember the chapter off the top of my head, that my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. And you go back and you study that passage. He wanted them, including Gentiles, people from other nations. He talked about eunuchs, people that at one time were cut off from those things when it was prophesied that he was going to bring them out of captivity and allow them to rebuild their temple, that the Messiah was going to come. And there were some things that he wanted to find. And he wanted people. He wanted people of faith. He wanted people from all over the world. But when Jesus showed up, you know what he found? a den of thieves. You know what he found? Only Jews. They were shutting people out of the kingdom. They had not done anything he had commissioned them to do when he brought them out of captivity, when he restored them. And you go study the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when it's prophesied that they were going to be taken out of the land and that they were going to be brought back in and restored. God gave them some very clear instructions. And basically, when Jesus showed up, it was what he called the day of visitation or a day of, it was like a day of reckoning. And he came to check up on Israel and they failed. They had not done what he wanted them to do. And so as a result, he didn't set up his kingdom during that time. Now, I do believe he was going to die. Either way, either way you spin it, no matter what would have happened, prophecy was very clear. Jesus was going to the cross. But before he was going to set up his kingdom, we see what happened because Israel failed. He took the kingdom from them. In other words, they lost the things of God. To them, were committed the oracles of God. Those things were taken away, and God ended up giving them to another nation. He gave them to a people who were not a people. He gave them to a people that were not necessarily a physical nation, but a spiritual nation. And these included people from all over the world, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and these people were the ones who uh, that we are now a part of, and we are the ones spreading the gospel. And you know what? You come to our church, 
we do have people of different races. We have people that are from other countries. We're actively doing what we can to get the gospel to every nation. We're not excluding people and we're teaching the truth and we're people that, you know, have been purified by the blood of Christ. And so um, Israel lost those things. And so whenever we say replace, when some people say replacement theology, you know, um, it isn't as, just as simple as the church replacing Israel. Well, there were a lot of things that were replaced. You know, the old covenant was replaced with the new covenant. And so uh, all the different aspects of that, that's something we'll probably talk about through this. But ultimately, um, the things of God were no longer exclusively going to be in Israel and in Jerusalem. They were no longer going to include the temple. Jesus reformed the things of the temple and he replaced them with spiritual things. He reformed the priesthood and replaced the Levitical priesthood with a, the priesthood of believers, which is what includes all of us with Jesus Christ being the high priest. So um, I, I would encourage you to go watch my sermons. I think it's on Matthew or uh, Mark 12, 13, 14. And I deal, I go in depth into a lot of those things. And it's very important to understand what Jesus was looking for when he came into Jerusalem that day and what he didn't find. And then you'll understand why Israel lost the kingdom and why it was given to another nation. Amen. Well said. Uh, there's so many questions that I want to ask based on that very thorough answer. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, though. So before I do, I'll, uh, I'll ask this question. I think this is important when it comes to dispensationalism and the biblical meaning of the word dispensation, because in my study, I have found that those that would consider themselves dispensationalists, when you actually look up in the Bible, what the word dispensation means, it's, it's not saying what, what they're saying. So mm -hmm. I guess the question, Pastor Tommy, would be, what is the biblical meaning of the word dispensation? Yes. So one thing I guess I failed to mention, too, on the one question you asked is the difference between dispensationalism and hyperdispensationalism. Right. And basically, nobody admits they're a hyperdispensationalist. So anyone who goes deeper into the craziness of dispensationalism, if they go more deep than they are, then they're a hyper. And, and, you know, and so uh, it's really hard to define that, but, but yeah, the word dispensation, it is, it, it's a, it, a, a distribution you could say is another word that you could say is similar. If I, uh, if I decide I'm going to give you something and I only give you part of it, you know, I distribute, I, I gave you a dispensation. And so when it comes to God's plan of salvation, God revealed a little bit more of that throughout time. God has only ever made, there has only ever been one way of salvation. And the way of salvation was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, uh, blood that he shed on Calvary, that was the only payment for sin. Uh, that atoned for the sins of all in the future, and it atoned for the sins of all in the past. That's what Hebrews 9 is all about, is it's showing how one sacrifice could be be sufficient when they were used to annual sacrifices. It's also explaining how one sacrifice can take care of all in the future and the ones from the past too. So the thing is, when it came to, as time went on, God revealed more and more of that plan. In the Garden of Eden, you could say they received the first dispensation when God told them the seed of a woman was going to bruise the head of Satan. Now, we know that was with Jesus Christ. 
They didn't know his name. You know, they didn't know what that was going to look like. But if they believed that, then, you know, we know that was Jesus they were believing in. And so as time went on, God revealed more and more. And in Hebrews, the very beginning of Hebrews, which I believe is um, our book on replacement theology, it is, or uh, you could even call it your book on dispensationalism, on how to interpret these things, we would see that uh, it says, God in sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past, out these last days spoken by a son, talking about Jesus Christ. And so um, throughout time, God was, he was just kind of peeling back the layers, revealing a little more. And man has only ever been accountable for what has been revealed to them at that time. And you know what? We've got more dispensations to come. And when those, disp you know, for example, where the next dispensation, I believe is going to be at the rapture, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to see him. Uh, I think a good way to explain this too, after the resurrection of Jesus on Pentecost, they received the Holy Ghost. When people would believe on Christ, they would receive, uh, they would they would receive the Holy Ghost. And I believe all those who were saved before Pentecost, before the resurrection, when they heard the message of Jesus, they received that dispensation, and they got the Holy Ghost. I believe the same thing is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. All those who are saved, when they see Him, no one's going to be like, "I don't think that's Him." and then not get glorified. No, if you're saved, when you see him, you're going to know exactly who it is, and you're going to be immediately changed. And you know what? We're going to know a little bit more during that time. And so I believe in the millennium. In the millennium, Jesus Christ will be on earth, and um, people are, in order to be saved, I know one, I know, I know two things. It's still going to require faith, and it's going to be without works. And so what that's going to look like, what the message is going to be, I don't know. But either way, all those who get saved in the millennium will be able to get saved because Jesus shed his blood 2,000 years ago. And I do believe Jesus is going to stick with his faith without works program, seeing that he's had that since the beginning of time. Amen. Again, well said. Uh, already lots of questions and um comments coming in so basically pastor tommy god has chosen to dispense or give more revelation of of his plan over time mm. essentially yes now um you touched on this earlier but we had a question here that kind of covers a lot of the questions that i personally have honesty angel you know we've received that distinction that important distinction from you uh pastor on, you know, mm -hmm. quote unquote, hyper dispensationalists and, and dispensationalists, although hyper dispensationalists would not mm -hmm. consider themselves, you know, of the hyper flavor, of mm -hmm. course. To me, I wonder what your thoughts on are on this. I feel like your dispensationalists that aren't hyper, that believe in, you know, works and faith in different dispensations, they're basically just watering down what dispensationalism really teaches. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that would be accurate? Is that kind of the thoughts that you have? About the faith plus works? Yeah, it, it sounds like with your dispensationalism architects like Clarence right. Larkin, C.I. Schofield, from my understanding, they did believe in right. different gospels and different. Yeah, so it's hard to say if most, I mean, obviously the circles that I've always run with and still run with, uh, they do not believe faith plus works. You know, I, I considered myself dispensational at one time just because I was told that's what you're supposed to be, but I never believe faith plus works. When I was in college and we 
Uh, we're going, you know, our one of the first classes we did was dispensational truth. We read Clarence Larkin's book. I felt like the whole class was explaining all the things we disagree with Larkin on. And that was one of the big ones. Um, dispensationalism makes a big deal out of the age of grace. We were told over and over again, we do not believe in the dispensation of grace. We believe it's always been grace. They would call it the church age is what they would call it. So uh, now I will say this. I do think that most people who are vocal advocates for dispensationalism do believe that faith plus work stuff. Mo but I, I think most IFB, they use dispensationalism when they need to, to defend their stance on the, on the rapture and on the Jews, but, um, they don't, they don't want to go that route of the faith plus works in the old Testament. Um, and, and I know, I know there's a lot of people out there that believe that Ruckmanites and stuff, but any Baptist I've ever run with has vehemently rejected that. And, and I try to reach out to the saved dispensationalists and they get very insulted when you lump them in with that teaching, because they don't believe that. Right. Right. Amen. Um, okay. So then my next question would be pastor, how were people saved in the old Testament? Obviously we understand that it was by grace through faith. What would be some, some biblical evidence for that? Right. Yeah. So I was trying to think of the best way to illustrate kind of where the disconnect is between us and dispensationalists on this stuff. But here's, here's how, anybody who's ever been saved was saved. God sent his son, Jesus, to pay for the sins of the world. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He died, was buried, and he rose again. And because of that, there is redemption. There is cleansing from sin. There is, payment has been made. So how anyone has ever been saved, it's been Jesus Christ. It's his story. It's, it's the gospel. Now where, you know, what I know the dispensation is screaming out there is because you see to them, salvation isn't as much and, and they're going to, they're not going to like me saying this. Okay. But it's just kind of true. Okay? It is true. Salvation to them is not as much about Jesus Christ as it is about, I have accepted certain elements of the gospel, you know, to them, the gospel, it's more than just the, the words and the actions and the story of Jesus Christ. It's, you know, black words on a white paper that they have subscribed to. And because those words, as Paul wrote them, were not penned down in the old Testament, no one could have been saved by those things. And so that's just kind of a misunderstanding of salvation. And so the thing is, the best way to explain, you know, how, how we get saved, you know, to, or try to communicate to them is it was always faith. It's, it's always been just that it's been faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's showing how it's always been a faith. So the thing is Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And, but what, what did Abraham believe? He believed that God would multiply his seed as the stars of heaven. You say, well, that's not the gospel. Well, actually it is because the way God was able to multiply his seed was going to be through Abraham's seed, which was Jesus Christ. And all of those who are of faith are in Christ and Abraham's seed. 
Abraham didn't know all those details because they hadn't been given yet. But because he believed that God was going to multiply his seed, he was he was saved. And so we know that belief and that faith was in Jesus Christ, even though he didn't know that yet. So, um, yeah, whatever whatever dispensation they were in, whatever time period they were in, when they would when they would believe God, when they would have faith, and then God would impute righteousness to them. And so it's the same thing today. It's not so much, it, you know, it, you know, I had faith in the revealed plan of redemption and therefore I got saved. And so, um, yeah, so that's how, that's how anyone's ever been saved. They had faith in the revealed plan of salvation and, um, we are blessed to live in a day where a lot more of that plan has been revealed than that day. But you know what? Abraham was just as saved as I am. David was just as saved as I am. And I believe they had eternal security in the Old Testament. Amen. And in Romans 4, Paul is using um, Abraham and David as an illustration of being saved by faith and faith alone. And yet they were separated by ample amount of time. And then today we're, we're saved the same. So we've always been saved by grace, even in Abraham's day, King David's day. And, and, and today, can you speak to, I, I like the way you put it with, with the seed of the woman, mm -hmm. basically those in, in Genesis that trusted or, or believed in, in that seed that would come and, and bruise um, Satan. Mm-hmm would be saved simply from that promise. So basically it's always been the same uh, mode of, of salvation, but more about that plan has, has been revealed to us over time. Right. Yeah. I like to, a uh, way I often illustrate it is um, so when I became, uh, when I was going to become a parent, I remember the first dispensation that we, we received of our baby. And you know what that dispensation was? It was lines on a pregnancy test. And what did, what did that tell us? Told us we had a baby coming. Now, if I go and, and, you know, back then we would talk about our baby that was coming. If I want, I can go back and I can tell that same story. And I could talk about when we found out Tommy, you know, Tommy the third uh, was coming. You say, well, you didn't know he was Tommy the third then. No, but I know that now. So if I'm telling a story from before he was born, we didn't even know he was going to be a boy. We didn't receive that dispensation until he was born. So, so the thing is, you know, over time, you know, we received more and more dispensations. Now he's grown up. He's almost, he's almost 21 years old. And now there's a whole bunch of things we could tell you about him. We understand his personality. We know about his looks. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can tell you about him uh, because we received so many dispensations at, at this point. But you know what? When all we knew about him was just the fact that we were pregnant even though she's not showing yet, all we had was lines on a little stick or whatever. Um, you know, it was Tommy. And so when we talk about those days, you know, my wife will say when I was pregnant with Tommy. So the thing is when we're looking back at the old Testament and we're seeing people have faith, you know, in the seed of a woman in, you know, uh, one who is going to multiply the stars or Abraham's seed is the stars of heaven. Uh, as that lamb that God himself would provide, uh, whatever those shadows were, it's okay for us to go back and refer to those things 
as Jesus. Abraham clearly believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because when he went to take his son Isaac to sacrifice him, he said to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, here's the question. Did Abraham fully understand the details of what he had just said? I don't know, but I believe he believed what he said right then. And let me tell you, there's no doubt what he was saying there was prophetic about Jesus Christ. We see in the New Testament that it said about Abraham that he believed that God could raise up his son, Isaac. When Abraham believed that, no one had ever been resurrected from the dead before. But yet Abraham still believed that. Now, how, how, could, he believe, how could he believe that? Well, for one, he was told that the Messiah was going to come through Isaac. And therefore, for God to be able to do that, he then he's got to have the power to resurrect. So again, it's so clear that um, you know all these things were pointing to Jesus Christ, and to act like they weren't Jesus Christ just doesn't make any sense. It's it's ridiculous. And so um, th that's the way I like to like to illustrate it. But to them, you know, to me, it's all about Jesus. I hear about the seed of a woman, I think of Jesus. I think about Amen. the cross. I think about what he did. They see just black words on white paper that you got to like sign your name to. And if those words aren't exactly as they are written in the New Testament, then they don't count. You're not signing on to the <laughs> right contract. And that's just ridiculous because the book the Romans wrote the book of Romans is, is the Apostle Paul proving a salvation that's by faith in Jesus Christ without works, and he's using the Old Testament to prove it? Amen. You know, these hyper-dispensations, they'll constantly ask this question, and I'm sure you've been faced with it over and over again. You know, where is the death, the burial, the resurrection in, in the Old Testament? If it's not there, if you can't show it to me, then, you know, the Old Testament Israelites or saints were, were saved by faith plus works. So here, here's a question. This is from David Preston. He's I appreciate you being here, providing your objections. He's of the uh, what I would consider the, the hyper-persuasion, the Ruckman persuasion. So he's asking, can Pastor Tommy provide any scriptures between Exodus and Malachi that show Old Testament saints were saved by faith? Right. So that is a that is a common, you know, Ruckmanite type tactic there that kind of illustrates what I've been trying to describe about how they, um, you know, how they view the gospel. So what they do is they demand that you show something, you know, that and it has to be spelled out like it was in the New Testament. But the thing is, if you go to Luke, all right, let's uh in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is after he's resurrected, when he's on the on the road to Emmaus, um he's explaining, you know, these he's talking to these guys who tell Jesus in verse 23 and when they found out his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels uh which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it not, even so as the woman had said, but they saw it not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe uh, all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses in all the prophets, he expounded unto them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves, uh, concerning himself. So right there, it tells us Jesus used Moses and all the prophets to tell them about the things concerning himself, specifically the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And you're going to tell me that the death, burial, and resurrection is not in the scriptures? But see, they want to see D-E-A-T-H, comma, B-U-R-I-A-L, comma, and resurrection, R-E-S-U-R-R-E-C-T-I-O-N. And if you can't show me those words in order with the name of Jesus Christ saying this is the way to salvation, then it's not there. No, it absolutely is there. And if you go into the book of Acts, when the apostles are preaching, they are constantly referring back to the prophets. And this is what was spoken of by the prophets over and over again. They are referring to the scriptures. And so the thing is, you know, it was whenever they were preaching the scriptures, they are giving the additional dispensation that they had received, the additional revelation. And so these things are so much clearer in the New Testament because we only have we only have shadows in the Old Testament. And so the thing is, in the New Testament, we've got the 3D image. But what they're so what they do, they demand you show a 3D image in the Old Testament. But no, the 3D image wasn't in the Old Testament because those things hadn't been revealed. It was only it was only the shadow. But so what they're asking me to do, you know, is they're asking me, you know, to show a picture of Tommy. Sorry about that. Just lost my microphone. They're asking me to show a picture of Tommy, you know, from before he was born, when all we had was the two lines on a stick. Obviously, I can't do that, but at the same time, too, you know, look at the date of what was on the stick. We know pregnancy takes nine months. Here's a pic, you know, here's a video after right after he was born. Here he is now. You know, it, it you know, it, it all adds up. That was him. But, be, you know, but then because I can't show a, um, an image of him at 20 years of age, you know, back in 2001 or 2002, you know, they act like it's a different person. No, that's absolutely ridiculous. Right. I love the way you put it. You know, we had shadows in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Today we have the 3D image. We know the bigger picture. And so Old Testament saints have really only ever been accountable, held accountable, that is, to that which has been revealed to them. Mm -hmm. Right. The parts of the one plan that has been the same since the beginning of time. Um, okay, great answer. Right. And here's oh, one more verse, too. I In Acts 3.18, it says, but those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. So so right there in Acts 3, he's saying everything the prophet said Christ would suffer, he did it. What were those things? It was the cross. It was his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the thing is, you know, yes, Isaiah 53, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus right. Christ. No doubt about it. The story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, death, burial, and resurrection. No doubt about it. So, uh, and you can go on and on and on with these. The, the story of the Passover, death, burial, and resurrection right there. The feast, death, burial, and resurrection. 
So it's it's all over the Old Testament, and you literally have to be blind as a Jew to not see it. Great point. I mean, Isaiah 53, like you said, death, burial, and resurrection. God would provide himself a lamb, mm -hmm. right? Which we have an example of a, of a shadow fulfillment, an immediate fulfillment with the ram. And yep. then obviously a future fulfillment with Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world um, it, in Genesis with Abraham and then the seed of the woman. So, And this is all the Old Testament. Um, so you've discussed briefly, you know, the church age, basically the dispensationalists, pre-tribulation rapturous, they like to say the church age, we're in the church age. So my question is, is it biblical? And if not, what does the Bible mean by, you know, church exactly? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, church age, you have to define that for me. I, um, obviously, uh, um, God reformed the church. And so, um, if you want to call this, if, if you, if, when you mean church age, you're referring to the time of the reformation after the things were taken from Israel and given to another nation, then, okay, I'm fine with that. Now, if you're implying that the church started, um, in the first century, then I would disagree with that. I don't believe that's biblical at all. I do believe the church was reformed in the first century, but, um, there was a church in the wilderness and we are a part of that same church. We are a part of that same body. And, uh, and yes, all day long, let's talk about the differences between old Testament church and new Testament church. There are, there are a lot. And that's why there needed to be a reformation. The re, um, when you look and you see Jesus show up at the triumphal entry and not find any fruit there in Israel, you know, we understand, you know, it's because there needed to be a reformation and that reformation came. And when Jesus Christ returns the second time, you know what, there's going to be a bunch of fruit. There's going to be a great gathering uh, of believers from all over the world, just like he wanted. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I don't have a huge problem with the term church age, as long as people have a good definition for it. But, um, and because most of the time when people say that they're just basically saying since, you know, since the time of Christ. And so I don't, I don't immediately correct people uh, when I hear them say that. So would you, um, Pastor Tom, I'm going to put this question on. Maybe you can speak to it a little bit. We hear about mid-Acts dispensationalists mm -hmm. quite frequently. Um, I'm assuming you're not a mid-Acts mid dispensationalist, of course. I've watched your series on, on Acts where you discuss mm -hmm. the local church, the New Testament local church essentially being a continuation of the Old Testament congregation, the church in the wilderness. Could you speak on that and maybe speak to mid-Acts dispensationalism for those unfamiliar with it? Yeah, so mid-Acts dispensationalism, um, that is a result of someone who gets challenged on dispensationalism, on regular dispensationalism. They get completely disproven wrong, and they've just got to go deeper into the woods of dispensationalism because so much happens in chapter 19 that will confuse the daylights out of you if you are a dispensationalist and so what we see happening in that chapter 
is um, you have um, them running into certain disciples of John who didn't know if there was a Holy Ghost. And so it says in there that it says, then said Paul, John, verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people they should believe on him who should come after him that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So where people are getting confused, it's like, okay, well, these guys were disciples of John, so they should be saved, right? But yet these guys don't have the Holy Ghost. What's going on? Well, that's because dispensationalists, they do, they think in terms of time frames instead of the true meaning of the word dispensation, which it is, it is it's just a distribution. So a, a good example, a way to understand what was going on around the same time, you have Aquila and Priscilla that run into Apollos, who knows only the baptism of John. Well, here's what we got to remember. They didn't have TV back then. They didn't have internet back then. What happened to all those people who were on different parts of the world? Because Jews were scattered all over the world during that time. But they would come to Jerusalem for the different feasts, many of them. And they would hear the preaching of John. They would hear the preaching of Jesus. And then they would go back to their countries. And they would get saved. You know, some of them even got baptized. But then when Jesus died on the cross, they didn't just all of a sudden, then just after he resurrected, or on the day of Pentecost, just boom, get the Holy Ghost too, okay? They had salvation, but they had not yet received the dispensation of the details of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the thing is, they were, we see examples of them during this time where they are, they're running into people who were already saved, but didn't know about Jesus yet. And so when Aquila and Priscilla ran into Apollos, you know, they, they explained the things more perfectly. They gave him the details because John, he preached about one that would come after him, the latchet of whose shoe he wasn't worthy to unloose. Well, Apollos clearly believed in that person, but you know what? He didn't know that it was Jesus, but if he believed in him, he got saved. And if he believed in him, it, that was Jesus Christ he was believing in. So what we, what we see happening is these people, they're receiving that extra dispensation. They're laying hands on them. They're receiving the Holy Ghost. It's that simple. Everyone who was saved before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ maintained their salvation and still had it after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But not everybody immediately knew about it. Those who were saved, though, I believe 100% of them, because every one of them that we see in the book of Acts, whenever they would hear the rest of the story, would receive it and get the Holy Ghost. We don't see any of these disciples. Well, you know, I, I believe what John told me, but I don't believe what you're telling me. No, they were saved and therefore they received that next dispensation. And so just like none of us, when Jesus Christ is revealed and we see him, are going to be like, yeah, you weren't what I thought. I don't believe in you anymore. No, when we see him, we're going to be like him for we shall see him as he is. So. These passages are only confusing if you're a dispensationalist. If you're, uh, you know, believe like I do, uh, these are not confusing at all. You're just seeing what happened when people who are already saved but hadn't heard about Jesus, you're just seeing what would happen when they would hear about Jesus. And you know what they'd do? They'd accept it. They'd lay hands on him. They'd receive the Holy Ghost. Now, here's the thing. 
today, it, we don't have any people left that were that were alive and got saved before that dispensation was given. All of us, we got saved with that fuller dispensation of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we all got the Holy Ghost immediately when we got saved. So uh, there are no more people like that. So hopefully that makes sense. Yes, it does. I appreciate the comprehensive answers. Before I get to, and I appreciate the audience being so engaged in this specific topic. I know it's controversial and it's important. So this is good. But before I get to some more of these questions and also uh, just questions pertaining to the uh, the verses, Pastor Tommy, that these uh, hyper dispensationalists use to say that works were taught in the Old Testament and even by Jesus. I want to ask you, because we've had some comments coming in mm -hmm. pertaining to our original question, basically about replacement theology, the church, so on and so forth. And people are asking, you know, what about the promises of Abraham? God, therefore, broke his promises. You're familiar with this. Right. So, th so the question I would then ask that I think would cover a lot of the comments that came in, mm -hmm. pastors, who inherits the promises of Abraham? Right. So. Yeah, listen, nobody believes God broke any of his promises to Abraham. When you say we believe that, you're that's a straw man, okay? Here's what we need to talk about, all right? Let's not waste our time hurling foolish accusations because we just don't like what the other person's saying. Here's Let's have a conversation about how is he going to fulfill those promises. That's the question we need to ask because, yes, without a doubt, there are some unconditional promises that God gave to Abraham. But you know what? There's also promises too, like in Genesis chapter 17 about the circumcision, that if they don't keep that, then they're cut off from the people. We see in Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things. Well, everybody's broken the law. So everyone should be under the curse. And guess what? Everyone is under the curse. Say, so, but but no, there's those 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 unconditional promises, and yes, God's going to fulfill those. So the question is, how does He get that done? Well, there is only one descendant of Abraham who never violated any of those laws. There's only one descendant of Abraham that kept the law, and interestingly enough, that one descendant of Abraham that did all that, he actually was cursed too, but. He was cursed for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. And, and so he died, but he also rose again. He conquered death and the grave. And so guess what? Jesus is still alive. So God is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham and his seed through Jesus Christ. Jesus physically, legally, the whole nine yards came from Abraham and so God is going to keep those promises through Jesus Christ. And so all the way, so it's like, well, then who does that include? It includes all those who are of faith. Because here's what you people don't understand. I, I don't think you realize how ridiculous your argument is. Because on one hand, and, and this is what I like to do to these people when they bring that up. It's like, so then all the Muslims are going to receive the land of Israel, right? Oh, no, no, no. Because they're of Ishmael. Okay. I, I agree, but they're, but they're from Abraham, but, oh, but no, because God said it was through Isaac. Well, Galatians four tells us we then as Isaac was are the children of promise. And 
Galatians 4 also tells us that the Jews are of Ishmael. You know why? Because all those who are of the flesh through Abraham, they are of Ishmael. It's those who are of the spirit, those who are of promise, those who are of faith that are of Isaac. Isaac is not about a physical lineage. It's a spiritual thing. The physical lineage is what Ishmael is all about. So if their reasoning is correct in thinking that, no, it belongs to physical Jews, well, then it belongs to physical Muslims just as much because they physically descend from Abraham. But no, Abraham had two sons, one of the flesh and one of promise, and those of promise, they are the ones who receive the promises. And uh, those that are, and, and Galatians 3 explains very clear that um, that the promises are of to those of faith who are of faith, not to those who are of the law. And so when you say physical Jews get it, well, then that claim is by law, not by not by promise, not by faith. So it doesn't work. There's no consistency in that argument at all. They just don't understand uh, what Abraham's seed is. They don't understand what the children of Isaac are and what the children of Ishmael are. It's like they've never read Galatians 3 and 4. Amen. It's kind of like it's a straw man argument because they're taking what they erroneously believe are promises, mm -hmm. misunderstanding, you know, who the promise is for, what the promise pertains to, what the seed is, and then saying, you know, those of the non-dispensational persuasion are basically saying that God broke his promises that they misunderstand. Yeah. Well, did God break his promise to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram when he swallowed them up and they fell down into hell? They were Jews. And during during the right dispensation. But you know what? They they were cursed. You know why? Because they were wicked, because they weren't of faith. There's a lot of Jews that everyone would agree went to hell. How about Judas Iscariot? Did God break his promise to Judas Iscariot? We know he's in hell. And but yeah, but yeah, he was a Jew, but he definitely was he definitely wasn't of faith. So the thing is, I do believe, you know, legally for God to keep his promise. There has to be at least one physical descendant that uh, comes from. It's not everyone. Again, not everyone that came from Abraham and not even everyone that came from Isaac. Esau didn't receive the inheritance. Esau is not included. So um, it absolutely doesn't work. Jesus, though, did. Jesus directly descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, he, and so he fulfilled all those things. So everyone who is in Christ, and that's everyone who got saved after Christ, and everyone who is of faith before Christ, they are all Abraham's seed. And so you better believe God's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And he's going to give that land to the very people he promised it to, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, Jesus said that they're going to come from the east and the west and the south, and they're going to sit with Abraham, right. Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom will be thrust out. So what's he saying? They say those physical descendants, they're not even going to be included, but people from all over the world will, and they will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because God is going to give those promises to the very people he promised them to. And for some reason, for some reason, theologians, because they've drank so much Schofield, Larkin, Ruckman, Kool-Aid, they think it goes to antichrist and i 
that's blows my mind. Hey man, you you stole that passage right out of it. It was the exact passage I was listening. Uh, I was thinking of pastor. I want you to speak to it. Matthew eight, 11 mm. to 12, that many shall come from the East and the West and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into out outer darkness. There shall be uh, weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Can you maybe spend a couple moment, moments speaking to, you know, who are they that are sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And who are the children of, of the kingdom being cast in, into outer darkness? Because when I first heard you speak on this, Pastor, um, it was like a light bulb going off. You know, outer darkness finally made sense because mm -hmm. I think for a while I had a misunderstanding of what outer darkness was. Mm -hmm. But in studying uh, dispensationalism and, and various aspects of end times theology, now this made sense. Can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah, so when Jesus said this, this was after a centurion, after a Gentile comes to him wanting Jesus to heal his servant. And the centurion understood that he wasn't worthy to have Jesus come under his roof, but he understand you could just speak the word. He said, and it'll, it'll work. And Jesus, he marveled when he saw that faith. He said, I have not found faith like this. No, not in Israel. And then that's when he, that's when he brought that up. And so... Uh, again, the children of the kingdom, they're going to be cast out. Israel lost the kingdom. They lost, they lost the things of God. They were cut off. They were removed. If we, now, if we want to talk about God breaking promises, if you think that they're, they are going to be included, then how is he going to keep this promise? Was Jesus just blowing smoke here when he said this? No, this is going to happen. There's going to be children of the kingdom. So in other words, the descendants of those who were of the kingdom. The, the These things were made for Israel. Uh, in Romans, it talks about to whom pertain it, the adoptions and the covenants and promises. I'm not quoting that exactly right. These things were made for them, yet they're going to get cut off of their own olive tree. They're going to be, they're going to be cast out. And it's because of the, and of the fact that they weren't of faith. And so that's, that's what people need to understand too. A lot of people who teach, you can lose your salvation. They go to passages uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is showing that Israel is in danger of losing the kingdom because of the fact that they are not of faith. And, and so sure enough, because Israel was not producing any fruit, you know what he did? He removed them and they lost that. Now, there are no Jews alive today that were a part of the kingdom when it was a thing, you know, for Jews, you know, they're none, none of them alive Jews of today. They were born on the outside. They were uh, in, con concluded in unrighteousness, just like Gentiles were. But during that time, there were people who were a part of that old covenant that the promises belonged to them. The kingdom belonged to them. Now they weren't eternally secure. They necessarily, they weren't saved necessarily if they hadn't, had faith and it had righteousness imputed to them yet. But the things of the temple did belong to them. There were a lot of Levites that weren't saved, but they were still of Israel. And so, so the thing is, once Jesus Christ came and spoke to them, revealed these things to them, those who rejected the husbandman when he showed up, and when they rejected the one that the inheritance belonged to, not them. 
Hey, you know what? They lost what they had. Amen. Um, you know, I'll play devil's advocate briefly here because I find this one kind of funny mm -hmm. and, and you've dealt with it uh, sufficiently, Pastor. So because Matthew 21, 43 is just so clear, it's, it's, it's irrefutable in, in my mm -hmm. opinion. And you rarely see the dispensationalists discuss this passage. They almost wish it wasn't there. And again, for the audience sake, you know, the passage says, therefore, uh, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. So it looks like, you know, one nation essentially was replaced with another. So what I've heard them say, Pastor, and I'd like you to speak to this, is, um, you know, Donnie or, or, or Pastor Tommy, don't you know that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not the same thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that I is a very frustrating teaching that is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't have the passages in front of me, but there are several passages where Matthew's account says kingdom of heaven, and then you know Mark and Luke's account uh, or John's they'll say kingdom of God, and they're talking about the exact same thing. The Bible puts no distinction between those two things. Now theologians try to force a distinction in there by going to a passage in Matthew where it's talking about the kingdom of heaven, where you don't find that same thing mentioned, um, you know, in one of the other gospels. And therefore there's a difference, but you cannot get that just from reading your Bible. There are so many examples where it's the exact same thing. And, um, you know, the kingdom, of, I mean, it's, you, so you do, you have to define these things with the Bible and they can't do it that you absolutely right. can't do it. There's more that shows them being the exact same thing, but it's just one more thing they're trying to force in there mm -hmm. because they're trying to prove another gospel in the book of Matthew, you know, for this call, uh, talks about Matthew 24, the gospel, of the kingdom being preached in all the world. And then should the end come and, you know, they got to prove that's for the Jews. It's not there. You know, the apostle Paul, you know, he talked over and over again about, you know, preaching the kingdom of God, you know, and he talked about preaching it to the Jews and to the Gentiles. The same thing, you know, was preached to both people. So kingdom of heaven, you know, that that's just a term that was used in the book of Matthew. And some say, and, you know, I, I don't see any reason to doubt this, that it was used that way because it was written to Jews. And, you know, they often would find it offensive you know, writing down the name of God for certain things. And so they just called it the kingdom of heaven, um, you know, for that reason. But either way, you know, the kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom. So to call it the kingdom of God isn't changing anything. But they're, that's how they divide. Their, their, their yeah. way of right division is separating things that the Bible doesn't separate. But they can't give you any biblical evidence that those are, in fact, different things it's they believe it's already that there's already two different kingdoms so that's their way of trying to prove it uh it, but it just doesn't work well and, and you're right it doesn't work and you know i can say i've looked into this topic objectively mm -hmm. and open-mindedly because some of my favorite preachers and teachers and scholars are dispensationalist pre-tribulationists so of course mm -hmm. i'm going to look into their arguments uh, you know, objectively, and I just don't find them convincing. And you nailed it there, uh, Pastor. So I, I, I put them on screen in, in the form of a slide just mm -hmm. to show people how obvious it is. So I'll share screen real quick. And exactly what you're saying, you know, they're used interchangeably. They're the exact same thing. Kingdom mm -hmm. of God and kingdom of heaven. 
especially with the rich young ruler, right? He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Luke 7, 21, uh, 21, 8. He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Mm. So th they're the exact same thing. They're, they're no different. Um, right here, Matthew 19, 23 to 24. Um, right here's the rich young ruler, the one I was speaking to. That a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the same thing. Then for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So to say that, you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are, are different really has no justification scripturally. Right. Yes. And, you know, in Acts 8, when they're still preaching to the Jews, you know, it says, but when they believe Philip preaching things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, you know, they are baptized both men and women. And then we see in Acts 20, you know, when Paul's talking to, you know, a mixed group of people, too, he says, and now behold, I know that y'all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. And Jesus, when he was preaching to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So a lot of, you know, a lot of these dispensationalists act like Paul and Jesus preached different gospels. But you know what? They both preach the kingdom of God, you know, and right. those were words that both of them used. And so, again, Matthew's the only place where it uses the term kingdom of heaven. But yet we see it described as the exact same thing as the kingdom of God in so many other places. And if they were different, you know, we should see some uh, real differences, not just Matthew maybe giving another story, another example of that word being used where it's not using the others. No, we need to see a real distinction. They're, they're doing the same thing they do with to prove Matthew 24 and the rapture in First Thessalonians 4 aren't the same thing. It's like, well, where do you see the resurrection of the dead? Well, where do you see that the dead, you know, don't rise during that time? Obviously, Jesus is dealing with some very specific aspects of his return in Matthew 24, where the Apostle Paul is dealing specifically with the rising of the dead in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's not dealing specifically with the return of Christ because he starts things out saying, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And so, of course, he goes on to talk about the return of Christ because that's when the resurrection of the dead happens. But when Jesus was talking to his disciples, you know, he wasn't talking about the resurrection of the dead. He was just talking about his return. So um, just because Paul focused on a different aspect of his return doesn't mean they were teaching different things. Different details don't equal different Gospels as long as they don't conflict with each other. So, right. You nailed it. Pastor Tommy, what would you say to somebody of the dispensational persuasion who, who were to say the kingdom is not in existence now and therefore, uh, yep, go ahead. Yeah. So that's what, well, you got to make them define king, what the kingdom is. All right. So yeah, define the king, you know, define the kingdom for me. And now a lot of them can't give a real good definition of that. And even if they do start to tell you something uh, with a lot of details, you know, they're not really going to give you any scripture to back it up. But the kingdom, I mean, it, you know, it's a it's a couple things. OK, for one, um, you know, the kingdom, I do believe, is a reference to um, the the ministry, the work, you know, of what um, we're supposed to be doing. Israel had the kingdom, meaning they were the ones they had the spiritual authority behind them. Um, remember what Jesus told the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, you know, Jerusalem 
is a place where you ought to worship. You know, but he said, uh, you know, the time is coming where they that worship must worship in spirit and truth. But there was a time when the things did belong to Jerusalem, where you did have to go to the temple, where you did have to go through, you know, certain things surrounding Jerusalem. But all that was taken from them, and it was, and it was given to another nation, and it was given to a body of believers that are all over the place. And we are, we're, there's, there's many churches now, and we have the things of God. We have the authority to baptize. We, we as the church, we have been commissioned to preach the gospel. Uh, as, as a church, we have the authority to ordain. We have received the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever we bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth is loosed in, in heaven. So uh, it's, the, it's the spiritual things. The spiritual things, that message, it does. It belongs to the body of the local New Testament church. And so right. as a church, when we are uh, fulfilling the Great Commission, when we're teaching people to observe all things, that is us you know, promoting the kingdom, exercising our authority in the kingdom. When we are baptizing people uh, that we do, we have the authority to do that. And obviously um, one of these days we all will be one kingdom, you know, at the return of Christ when he gathers us together. But, you know, so the, so the kingdom, it's not just a geographical location, but it is a, and it's not even just, a group of people, but it's a work, it's a ministry, and those things belong to the church. I don't believe that 10 circus clowns can just get together and say, hey, there's more than two or three of us. We're a church. Let's go baptize somebody. <laughs> um, no, that's not how that works. I do believe uh, that churches start churches, and I believe that there's a certain way that things need to be done, and I believe a church can lose their candlestick. You know, and I believe that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 11 when he told the church in Rome not to boast against the branches. Because, yeah, God quit using Israel, but you know what? He said, be careful, you know, lest he spare not thee. And uh, and I believe that happens all the time where churches that were good fruit bearing branches eventually went apostate and they were broken off. Now, the people that got saved never lost their salvation, but that church is no longer reaching people. I mean, where's the church in Rome now? You know, so obviously they didn't last. They didn't last forever. But uh, thankfully, you know, we got new branches growing and popping out all the time and replacing those ones. And I believe there will always be branches that are bearing fruit and, um, you know, administrating the things of the kingdom of God. So well said, Pastor. I appreciate that response. A good question that I've I've seen you ask many dispensationals. You just had a discussion slash debate uh, mm -hmm. last week with uh, Pastor Kirby. I thought it was excellent. You, you did a fantastic job. And I was wondering if you could speak on this. So if I could summarize the question, it is if you were a first century Jew that got saved at Pentecost, at what point did they become separated from Judaism? or what they were previously following. Right. And I'm telling you that I can't get anybody to answer that question for me. Right. And that's one of the, that's one of the biggest things I've noted as I've been going through the book of acts is they never thought they stopped being Jews. 
they didn't see themselves as joining a new church. They'll go to, you know, they'll go to uh, the Pentecost when it talks about the people being added to the church and all that. And like it, and so they'll just use that like some new thing got started. And obviously they were the, obviously they were the church. Obviously they were the first New Testament style church in, um, you know, that we see in Jerusalem. They, they were, they were the first ones, but yet they continued doing the things um, of the temple. Now, I don't believe they were supposed to keep doing all that stuff, but it hadn't been revealed yet during that time. And so, um, yeah, in fact, um, tomorrow is today, today's Monday. So on Wednesday, I'm going to be preaching from Acts chapter 23. And um, I noticed a, a verse in there I never thought about before where Paul, you know, he's standing trial and, um, oh man, I don't, you know, I don't have that in front of me. I have to look for it here in a little bit, but it's very clear from the apostle Paul when he's standing trial, he's telling them, he's like, I actually am obeying all things that are in the law. And he, Paul did not see himself as leaving Judaism. But what happened is Judaism for the most part did, they went apostate, but they were the ones that violated the law. They were the ones that were broken off. And those who were saved, they actually just stayed in what they were always a part of. So, uh, yeah, that's, I can't get anybody to answer that. And, you know, and the other question I like to ask, too, is since Jesus Christ has inherited all things, I forgot what passage it is, now I have it in front of me, and I'm a joint heir with Christ, what does a physical Jew have coming that I don't? Right. have coming. And if he gets saved, is he going to lose it? And so then my question is, what does a saved Jew have that I don't as a joint heir with Jesus Christ, who is also a Jew, by the way? And nobody can really answer these questions and because they can't be answered. Great response. I was wondering if, because, you know, this one seems very clear cut to me, mm-hmm. these couple passages for the audience sake, I'll put them up on screen. Um, obviously you're familiar with them, Pastor Tommy. So for anybody not familiar with them or anybody on the fence that's looking into this with an open mind, can you speak to, for example, Romans 2, 28 to 29, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God, and then connect it with Romans 9, which I believe is an extremely powerful verse. Uh, you were speaking on this earlier, how, you know, because they are the seed of Abraham, uh, are they the children? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. But uh, most importantly, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. What do these passages mean, uh, Pastor? Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, to, before I kick that one off, I found that passage. It was actually chapter 24. I was looking ahead uh, today. This is for the next week. But when Paul is on trial, he says in Acts 24, 12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, talking about the Jews, so worship I the God of my fathers believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So again, Paul is showing now the Jews are calling this heresy, 
But I believe, I just believe all of the law is what he's saying. So uh, Paul did not see himself as leaving Judaism and forsaking the things of the law. And so to Romans, to Romans 2, while that's important, is the Jews, they made being Jewish all about things of the flesh. But the fact is, you have to do all of the things, not just the circumcision, not just a few of the pet things that they uh, that they had chosen. Because Paul is saying in verse 25, for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. So great, you got circumcised, but you know what? You forgot to offer two turtle doves after you were born. Uh, you know, you forgot to do this one sacrifice. You know, you you messed up in this one area. So guess what? Yeah, you got circumcised, but it doesn't count because you have to keep the whole law. So the Jews, they just decided they were going to cherry pick. And so he says, therefore, if the uncircumcision, referring to the Gentiles, keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And so he's just showing there that this is not an outward thing. This is not a physical thing. This is not about a keeping of the law. This is an inward thing. This is a spiritual thing. And even in the Old Testament, I believe it was Isaiah who uh, God spoke by Isaiah and told me, he said, he's, you know, he's like, yeah, you've got the circumcision of the flesh, but you need to circumcise the foreskins of your heart. Because so they had done some of these outward things, but they didn't have the, they hadn't done the inward things. They didn't even have a love for God. They had a love for themselves. They, they, the, the circumcision was no longer about a covenant between them and God. This is, it became, look at what we do as a physical people. And so in Romans nine, when it says in verse six, not as though the word of God taken none effect for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. It's not about all who physically descend because in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And, and they get excited because they say, well, the Jews came from Isaac. No, he's Isaac was of promise. Paul in Galatians 4 makes it crystal clear. The Jews are of Ishmael because they're only physical. And so it says that is they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And so he's going on to explain how that's us. Hey. And Abraham was included in that because Abraham was of faith. We are counted for the seed. So yes, God is going to keep all his promises because he counts us as the seed, because we are of faith, because we are of promise, because we're like Isaac. That's what, that is why. And so God is going to keep those promises. So uh, I just, Romans 2 and Romans 9 are so clear. I just don't know how you, right. these people... I get around and they you know what they ignore it. They don't talk about it. I don't hear him expound no. on these passages. 
Well, it, it's so clear. An excellent answer. You know, in in Isaac, thy seed, thy seed will be called. With the Jews being of Ishmael, the children of the flesh. With the children of the promise being the ones of Isaac. And um, I think this was an argument maybe that Pastor Kirby used or something similar the other day with your discussion with him. What if they were to say that, you know, us non-dispensationalists are allegorizing that about Ishmael? What's a good response to that? I stole it from Paul. Right. Paul in, in Galatians 4, he called it an allegory. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you better believe I'm allegorizing that mm -hmm. because Paul said, here's an allegory. Just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, the Jews are persecuting the church. Right. So guess who the Jews were? They were Ishmael and the church was Isaac. So, yeah, of course I'm allegorizing that. But Paul did. And that's a difference. Like, it, for, you know, for those who saw my discussion with Pastor Kirby, hey, he was allegorizing things that the Bible does not specifically tell us these are allegories. I was using allegories that the Bible specifically mentions. The only, exactly. I think the only time you see the word allegory in the Bible is in Galatians chapter four. And so, of course, I will use that all day long because the apostle Paul did it. And I, yeah, and that allegory was about legalism versus liberty. Um, right. It was about Ishmael. The Jews were persecuting the church. It's so I, clear. That's yeah. what, that's what that was about. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's uh, it's amazing people's ability to just change the subject of a pa of a passage, but I also use the allegory. Now Stephen didn't use the word allegory, but Stephen made a comparison, uh, and was I didn't talk about this. So uh, when I was on, had my discussion with Pastor Kirby, but we were talking on the phone one time, and he brought up how Moses presented himself as a deliverer when he was forty years old, and if you remember that story, how. Uh, he saw the Egyptian man smiting the Jew, uh, the Hebrew, and he went and he killed him. And then the next day he had the two guys fighting and then he stepped in because he's going to be a judge and he's going to be a ruler. And they rejected him. They said, you know, who made the judge and a ruler over us? And they ran him off and he went in the wilderness for 40 years. But you know what? 40 years later, he came back as a deliverer. And you know what? The Jews, they rejected Christ at his first coming and he's gone away to heaven. But one of these days, he's coming back as, as a deliverer for Israel. And when I heard him say that, you know, I'm like, well, you know, that's a, that's a great comparison. But at the same time, you have to clearly show me somewhere in the Bible where that, in fact, is going to happen in the future. Well, the funny thing about that is I, right, not long after that, I'm preaching through Acts chapter 7. And sure enough, Stephen used that comparison. Stephen gave the exact same comparison that Pastor Kirby did. But Stephen said that Israel's first rejection was uh, when he came down on the mount. And they and they told Moses, you know, they got, remember how scared they were because the mount, mountain quaked and they, they feared hearing the voice. And they said, you know, don't let that happen again. And so uh, God told them, they have well spoken. If they have spoken, I'm going to raise up a prophet among your own brethren, like unto you, Moses, and unto them shall they hear. And so um, he, so right there, it, Stephen said that when uh, Israel rejected Christ in the wilderness, when they made the golden calves, when in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, 
that was them rejecting Christ. And so then he's calling them out because Jesus Christ did come, you know, born of a virgin. He came as a deliverer there in the first century. And you know what they did? They rejected him again. But folks, Jesus already came as a deliverer. Jesus already came to turn ungodliness away from Jacob. People are, are going to Romans chapter 11 and act like it's still to come, even though Peter on Pentecost said in verse Acts 3.25, year the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. Wait a minute, I thought the Jews we're the blessing in the whole world. No, Peter, Peter didn't say you all are the blessing in the whole world. He said Jesus was a blessing to you. Okay, because it's Abraham seed Jesus, not Jews. And so he said, God raised up his son. Jesus sent him to bless you. Look at this, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. And you know what? Those who believed on him, that's exactly what he did. He turned them from their iniquities. The deliverer already came, ladies and gentlemen. I can't believe I'm still telling people this. I feel like <laughs> I feel like Peter at Pentecost telling them the Messiah came, the deliverer came, you better accept them. And we got dispensationalists out there, like still waiting for the deliverer to come. That sounds more like, you know, listen, the deliverer already came. Right. You're prepping people for the Antichrist, is what right. you're doing. Right. It's dangerous. I don't know why it's so difficult, Pastor, for a lot of these dispensations to understand that being a child of God is not about nationality or religion. It's about Christ. And those in Christ are children of God, the true seed of, of Israel. And this can be both Jews and Gentiles, as long as they are believers. It's as simple as that. And it's 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 what makes sense. Um, right. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I'm trying to read some of the comments. I noticed yeah. that SoCal presence, like he's, he said the Jews rejected Jesus. And yeah, you better believe I said that the Jews rejected Jesus and they rejected him in the first century or not in the first century. They rejected him in the wilderness. That's what Stephen right. was talking about. And he went on to say this was he that was with the church in the wilderness. Stephen is telling these Jews who are rejecting Christ for the second time, that this one that we're preaching to you, Jesus, is the one that our fathers rejected in the wilderness. So yes, he was, again, he wasn't revealed by that name during that time, but that is exactly, that is exactly um, what they did. It says in Acts 7.35, this Moses whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliver by the hand of the angel which appeared unto him in the bush. And so he's comparing Moses to Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 37, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him, unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the life of the oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turn back unto Egypt. Now, did, did they thrust Moses from him? Moses stayed with them. 
No, it was God. It was Jesus that they thrust from them. They couldn't handle him. And so when he came down on that mount, it, it, it shook, it quaked. They couldn't handle it. They asked Moses, don't let that happen again. And you know what? God said they've well spoken. They couldn't handle God and his glory. They were too wicked. They were too sinful. And so God did all that to help them understand just how wicked and sinful they were. But then he gave them the promise that he's going to raise up someone among your own brethren. And we know from Acts 7, from Acts 3, that that was Jesus Christ. So it was Jesus in the wilderness that the Jews rejected. And if you don't like that, take it up with Stephen. <laughs> Stole it from him. Amen. Great points. Great points. Pastor, weren't many of the prophecies pertaining to the restoration of Israel fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity? Yes. So, and obviously when you look at the, a lot of those promises, you see a lot of millennium type things in there, Right. but here, here's what everyone is missing um, when it comes to uh, looking at those prophecies. So, yeah, we've got a bunch of prophecies where God is going to restore Israel to the land. He did exactly all of those things. But what everyone is ignoring is all the instructions that God gave to Israel of things that they were supposed to do when they were restored to the land. And God told them, you know, so God said, I'm going to restore you to the land. He did that. And he's like, and then I want you to do this. I want, he gave them all these things that they were supposed to do. And then he did. He said, um, well, let, let me just give one example. In Malachi chapter three, um, he said, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I believe that uh, Jesus came and did his part on at the triumphal entry, okay? Jesus came and did his part. The problem is Israel had not done their part. And so it says, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, when did that happen? Okay. And so here's the thing. It actually did happen. Okay. Israel did offer a sacrifice, but it wasn't the sons of Levi. Okay. Jesus had to replace that priesthood. And the one who offered up a sacrifice that was acceptable was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who offered up himself as a sacrifice. He, so Jesus offered the offering of righteousness. You know why? Israel wasn't capable of doing it. The priests weren't holy. They weren't consecrated like they were supposed to be. And it says, then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith Lord of hosts. So here's the thing. You say, well, when did he do all those things? Well, here's the thing. If Jesus would have done all that at his first coming, Israel would have been wiped out because they were guilty of all those things. But you know what? We all know this verse, for I am the Lord, I change not. 
Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So guess what? Even though here in Malachi's day, Israel was a mess and God's basically given a failing report card because Malachi comes right after Zechariah. Zechariah is all about them rebuilding the temple. Malachi is after they've had the temple for a while and God, the prophet basically is telling them, you're doing everything wrong. You aren't doing what I restored you to the land to do. And so he prophesies of the Messiah who's going to come and how he's going to purify you and do all these things. But again, Israel was so bad off when Jesus came. They were such a mess. And so the thing is, all those things got fulfilled, but through Jesus Christ. And you know what? He didn't consume the sons of Jacob. He didn't kill them all then. He still gave them a way of salvation. Even at the stoning of Stephen, when Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father, and I don't have time to prove this, but I'm convinced he was going to kill them. But Stephen made intercessory prayer for them, just like Moses did when they rejected him the first time on the mountain. And he said, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. And guess what? He didn't consume them again. You know, he, he still has not. He's not changed. He's given them a chance to be saved. And so that's what um, that's what the restoration was all about. So a sacrifice could be made that was acceptable to God so they could be purified, so they could be delivered, so he could defeat their enemies. But the problem was when Jesus came to do all those things, Israel was not ready. They were not ready when the bridegroom came and they did not have oil in their lamps when he came. And so as a result, we don't see full fulfillment of all of these things take place. We see a partial fulfillment take place. But as far as when it comes to the physical things of them receiving the land back, all of those things happened. But whatever it was that, um, you know, whenever it comes to those millennial things, those are going to be fulfilled in the in the resurrection. But the, the physical gathering of the people, the land... Yeah, that stuff, it all took place then. And um, and anything that's left to be done with them, it's going to happen with the resurrected people. So much great insight and, and a lot of uh, fascinating insight, Pastor, that I just don't see, unfortunately, from the dispensationalist uh, crowd. Right. Uh, you know what? Dis yeah, dispensationalism, it builds walls. Okay. Yeah. Where yeah. God broke down the middle wall partition, dispensationalism builds them back up. So you know what? They're always beating their head against a brick wall. I think some of them gotten brain damage from it. But uh, <laughs> once you once you get rid of dispensationalism, the whole Bible makes sense. Right. Everything right. comes together. You know, it's why you find a lot of these uh, dispensationalists, pre-tribulation Zionists. You know, they rarely preach out of uh, the book of Revelation. They rarely uh, talk about a lot of these verses that we're talking about today because I think they understand deep down inside that it kind of refutes their position. And... Um, one of them that you've done a sermon on that I've watched several times because it's it's, uh, it's very detailed, it's very thorough, and it's helped answer a lot of the questions I've had, especially as somebody who um, spends a lot of time studying end time theology, you know, post-tribulation versus pre-tribulation. You'll find the pre-tribulation dispensationalists, they'll, they'll oftentimes say, well, the tribulation period is for Jews and Israel because of Jacob's trouble. I was wondering if you could speak on that, uh, Pastor. Right. So, yeah. So obviously Jacob's trouble, uh, the, the time of Jacob's trouble, that was, um, 
That was given in Jeremiah during a time when the Babylonians were upon them, where they, you know, uh, the Babylonians, them taking over Jerusalem, it wasn't something that happened overnight. And it was something that kind of happened over a period of, of several years. And it was, it was a, it was a very horrible time for them, but they, um, a lot of those things that took place, um, during that time, I do believe were shadows of the tribulation. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it, but one thing that, um, I think everyone does, I think, I think post-tribbers sometimes do this just as bad as the pre-tribbers. I think this is something we've just kind of stolen from the dispensational crowd is we will take a prop. If, if, if we find a prophecy that has anything that we know is about the future, we make that entire passage about the future. That's wrong. Okay. All we have to do, I believe many of those Old Testament prophecies, and even some of the New Testament prophecies, we need to pro uh, we need to interpret them the same way we do ones about Christ's first coming. When you look at this, uh, the prophecy for unto us, or uh, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Without a doubt, that is a prophecy that was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ. No doubt about that whatsoever. But if you keep reading that passage, it tells us that that's going to be fulfilled before, I forgot who he's prophesying against, they're going to lose both their kings. Well, that happened during that day. So the thing is, there was one verse that was, that was a, that the literal fulfillment was hundreds of years in the future. But there was an immediate fulfillment that most of that passage was about. And we see things like that in the Old Testament where they're prophesying about things that pertain to that day that included a prophecy that's way out into the future. But what people do, they completely disregard what the immediate fulfillment was and they make all of it about the future. And when you do that, you're going to you're going to be so off and so confused it's not even funny. And people do that with Daniel real bad. And and, and you can't do that. You must you know, learn to recognize what's about that day and what's about the, um, you know, distant future. And so I think you can speculate on a lot of things, but I'm not dogmatic that something from the Old Testament, especially, is still to come in the future, unless I have something in the New Testament specifically talking about that. So I don't know if that helps. Yes, that is helpful. You know, I'm hoping maybe because there's so many points I want to kind of elaborate on there. I think I'll save mm -hmm. it hopefully for a future show where we can discuss just pre-tribulationism because we could do a whole nother uh, two hour discussion on that. So mm -hmm. I better before um, time's flying by with you, Pastor McMurtry, as always. So before we hit the two hour mark, I better get a couple of these a uh, mm -hmm. couple of these passages in. we've had um, several debates on this topic and you're hyper dispensationalists. Um, firstly, I've, I've realized that they don't really understand the difference between earthly or physical salvation and eternal salvation, mm -hmm. right? The, the cursings and the blessings in, in the old Testament with old Testament Israel versus the verses that actually have to do with eternal salvation, mm -hmm. not, you know, not with how to be in God's blessing, um, physically on, on mm -hmm. this earth. So they'll look to. Um, a major verse that they'll look to is in Matthew 19, 16 to 17. 
they'll say that Jesus taught salvation by faith plus work. So I can read it out here. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandment. So basically they're saying Jesus taught a different gospel than mm -hmm. Paul. This is a different dispensation. And Jesus is teaching uh, salvation by works. Right. Is, is this really true, Pastor? Yeah, I, I've, I've heard... I've heard people do that, and it blows my mind because I don't think that passage could be any clearer. So first off, he said, what good thing? And he called him good master. And he said unto him, why callest thou me good? For there, there is none good but one, that is God. So, um, you know, right there, that you know what that kind of sounds like? As it is written, which is from Psalms, there is none righteous, no, not one. Right. Uh, that's what that sounds like. But this guy didn't see himself as sinful. And remember how Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why did he say that? Was it because the righteous didn't need calling? Well, no, it's just, you can't get saved until you see yourself as a sinner. And that is a fact. You cannot be saved without recognizing that you're a sinner. So Jesus said, but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. I mean, listen, if you keep all the commandments, then how can you be judged as a sinner? There's no doubt Jesus is trying to show this man that he's a sinner. And Jesus mentions several commandments, and he's like, I've kept all these things. What lack, lack I yet? And he said, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell thy house and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard these sayings, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus is trying to teach a lesson here. There, there's no doubt about it. And a lot of times when you ask a question to maybe your child that you're trying to teach something to, you know, sometimes you don't have to give the answer because the answer is obvious. And what Jesus has just revealed to this man, that not only is he a sinner, but he's broken, he's violated the single greatest commandment that there is to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This man loved his possessions more than he loved God. So uh, I think this was just Jesus revealing this man's sin to him. and But you know what? The guy the guy didn't see it. He went away sorrowful because he had great possession. Or maybe he did see it, but he wasn't willing to admit. Uh, you know, he wasn't willing to admit that. So, um, and, and here's the, so here's the funny thing about that too. You know, that's when he goes on to say, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? I mean, if a rich guy can't do it, I mean, you know, who can? But Jesus beheld him and said unto them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so the, the thing is, man can't save himself. I think he's telling this guy what he's got to do to save himself. That man needed to be coming to Jesus for salvation. Not coming, him, not coming to him looking for affirmation that he's done good and has a, a gained salvation on his own. And so, uh, yeah, with men, it is, it's, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Anybody can be saved with Jesus Christ. So it, it's, it really, they got nothing. They really, they really have nothing there. Everything right. I see there lines up with exactly what Paul taught.
about salvation. Yeah, that is a very weak approach to, uh, you know, proving their position. He is looking, the, the rich young ruler here, as you're saying, he's looking for affirmation that he has done good. And Jesus is showing him that there is none good but one, which is God. He basically has to get this man to recognize he's a sinner. You know, our, our works, our righteousness are as filthy rags, and then he can begin to understand the gospel. So, you know, to take this to teach some kind of work salvation during the ministry of Jesus, to me, is really bizarre. But do you understand, too, this is what I've been, I was trying to describe earlier. To dispensationalists, it's not even, a, it, the gospel is not a spiritual message. It's a physical message. Jesus was always trying to get things across with spiritual things. He never gave the gospel the exact same way twice. What did he tell the woman at the well? You know, ask for a drink of water. What did he tell the people uh, that came looking for bread? I'm the bread of life. You got to eat meat. Why is he saying it different every time? You know why? Because he's trying to get a spiritual message across right. to these people. Why did he say to Nicodemus, he must be born again? Why isn't he saying the same thing to every single person that he's talking to? Because he is trying to deal with their specific hangups, trying to help them understand a spiritual message, one that has been fully revealed to us, a salvation that is all about faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, a work that he had not finished yet at that point, but at the same time, we know if those people, if that woman, when that woman at the well, she believed on Christ, you know, she got saved. All If that rich young ruler, even though Jesus had not finished the work on the cross yet, if he would have just come to him and said something more along the lines of, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, he would, he would have gotten saved. So uh, Jesus always said it different because the gospel, it's a spiritual message more than it is a physical message. We do have the gospel written down on paper for us. And thank God for that. We must have that. We need that. But you know what? You can memorize all the verses about the gospel in the Romans. I'm sure John MacArthur's got the Romans road memorized. He probably even has memorized in King James. But at the same time, it's obvious he doesn't understand it. It's obviously, it's obvious that he hasn't put his faith and it, he's missing so many spiritual aspects of it, especially when you see what he teaches about the blood. There's there's no doubt there are huge things that he's missing. But anyone who's capable of reading and has any ability to memorize can memorize certain aspects of Scripture and they can repeat back facts. But it's when people have no ability to see the spiritual message. And they make it, and, and that's why I don't believe people who believe in faith plus works in the Old Testament are saved because they can't see the spiritual message. They they don't see the death, burial, and resurrection in Isaiah 53. They don't right. see Jesus Christ in the Passover and all these things. They don't see God's plan of redemption in all of these stories. And it's because it is, it's a spiritual message and, and they don't get it. They want you to see, um, you know, show them the exact words of Paul spelled out in the same way and in the same order in the Old Testament. And these people's their comprehension of things is so carnal that when they see kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, 
they see two completely different things. And I heard one dispensationalist one time, he said, well, they are two different words. They're spelled different. But what are they talking about? <laughs> They're talking about the exact same thing. And yet they've, they've separated those things. They right. are missing the spiritual message. It, it's a very unsophisticated system of, of Bible interpretation. Like you put it, it's very carnal. Yes. I mean, they're basically making themselves just as guilty as the rich young ruler is. You know, what good thing must I do, basically? You know, mm -hmm. something to earn uh, eternal life. Plus, I think it's dangerous because they're accusing, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jesus, the apostle Peter, of teaching a work salvation. That's, right. a, that's a pretty huge accusation. Well, you know, we've, yeah, and we've got people on our side that are the same way. For example, um, there are there are people who, if you don't specifically put an emphasis on eternal security and say those words, then you're not really giving people the gospel and you aren't really getting people saved. But it's just like, but listen, I think it is so, I think it is a very important thing to whenever you're making sure someone understands the gospel, that you question them on eternal security, for sure. But the thing is, if a person believes, whosoever believes shall have everlasting life, they believe they've they believe eternal security, right? You know, uh, you know, he that drinketh this water will never thirst again. Jesus covered eternal security. With the woman at the well, we say you'll never thirst again. Jesus covered eternal security when he said, "You eat, you know, this bread, you'll never hunger." All right. That's got eternal security right there. So the thing is, you know, but because of the fact there are people out there who teach you can lose your salvation, and I don't believe a saved person is going to teach, go around teaching people they can lose their salvation. I, I don't believe that at all. But um, the eternal security is spelled out everywhere. In the gospel, if you believe not of works, you know, that salvation is not about works, then, you know, that tells me you believe in eternal security. But it's like if you don't have those words come out of your mouth, people act like you can't get somebody saved with that message. And it's just like. Jesus didn't say eternal security. He said never thirst. Right. He said everlasting right. life. He said never hunger, you know, so but it doesn't compute with them. Sorry, in my robot mind, I didn't see <laughs> eternal security. Therefore, people can't get saved. Dude, I'm starting to think you don't even understand the gospel. <laughs> I, I, I think to some of these people, it is. It's black words on white paper. They've just gotten their black words from people who do a good job explaining the gospel. But it's like you're still clearly missing the spiritual message of it. And I think that's why, too, you know, we see people all the time who at one time were going to a good church, soul winning and all this stuff, you know, later teaching crazy heresies and getting labeled reprobate. Well, you know, anybody can learn what facts to repeat back. But when you have no ability to show that you even get the spiritual message behind things, it tells me you're not saved. So they're in every camp. Right. That's a very important point. I mean, it, it's so bad when, when these guys say Jesus didn't teach eternal security. He literally taught you'll never die, never thirst, never hunger. That's right. pretty emphatic, That's right? Eternal never, security. ever die. That's eternal security. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll, I'll sneak this one in. So um, somebody like David Preston here, you know, he says, 
he doesn't, he's not a big fan of your Peter Ruckman and your Andrew Sluter and Robert Breakers of the world. He says he's more of a, uh, you know, Schofield kind of guy or Larkin, mm. Clarence Larkin. So he's, he's saying that they would teach Jesus in, in the OT, which, mm. which the first thing that comes to mind, that's kind of bizarre then, because you see people like Andrew Sluter, right? Who, who would say, you know, where is the death, burial and resurrection in the mm. Old Testament as a way to demonstrate the strength of their position? But then if we do have people like Schofield and Larkin that are basically acknowledging the fact that we have the death, burial, and resurrection in the Old Testament, then why not just take that to that logical conclusion of it was it was faith and trust in that in the mm -hmm. Old Testament as well. But is, is there any thoughts on, on this specific question, Pastor? Um, so I, I guess if I, if I understand the question correctly, um, yeah, when you're saying the death, burial, and resurrection is not in the Old Testament, when you're saying that Abraham did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, then what was he believing in? You know, I mean, if, you know, if the death, burial, and resurrection is not in the Old Testament, then what was Isaiah talking about in Isaiah chapter 53? So again, I, it seems like all of the faith plus works in the Old Testament people are in fact taking Jesus out when they're saying Abraham did not believe on Christ. You know, that Adam and Eve did not believe on Christ. Uh, I think, you know, now am I saying, I, you know, am I saying that they have completely removed him, say he's never there? Well, if I said that, that maybe that's taken a little too far. Because, yeah, I mean, I think even guys like Sluter would acknowledge the fact that, you know, uh, there's prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. You know, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You know, even Sluter would say that's talking about Jesus. Right. But uh, I guess what I mean by that is when they are putting Abraham's faith in something that's not Jesus, something that's not in the death, burial, and resurrection, I see that as, you know, taking him out of the equation when it comes to salvation. So I think that's probably a better way of saying it, is they are, uh, they are teaching a salvation without Jesus in the Old Testament, and that there's anybody who teaches faith plus works uh, or different gospels. Uh, that is exactly what they're doing. Right. So that's probably, and, I probably could put that a little better though. No, I appreciate, appreciate that response. You've done a video responding to Andrew Sluter, who mm -hmm. I would consider one of these hyper dispensationalists. And he posed a number of questions or challenges to non dispensationalists. And one of his challenges was literally show me the death, burial and resurrection in the old Testament. So this is, you know, legit something that they teach and ask. And he would consider himself, I believe, a follower or a learner of Clarence Larkin. And yeah. and, and, and again, so. it's like you give all those verses. And again, it's to him. It's a combination of letters, you know, on paper in the Old Testament. Right. But again, I showed on the road to Emmaus, Jesus used Moses and all the prophets to prove the death, burial, and resurrection. The apostles did it in the book of Acts. I don't know what I don't know what to say to people like that. There's just some people it's kind of pointless to talk to. And that's yeah. why um, I do. I, I just kind of prefer to not waste my time with that wing of dispensationalists because I think they're so lost. It's not even funny. And I'm trying to reach the save dispensational crowd. And and they are insulted by that kind of teaching. And so I, uh, you know, I'm I mean, I'm fine with 
featuring some of these people uh, to a certain extent just to show foolishness and things like that. Right. But I don't want to give them like respect as a um, an honest theologian, as a um, a real representation of a pre-tribber, of a pro-Israel person. I think that is very disrespectful to many good people who are pro-Israel and are pre-trib. I think to lump people like that in uh, with that crowd is very insulting. And I'm not going to reach those people if I do that. So um, I prefer not to. When I did a discussion with Sluter a long time ago, I got so many saved dispensationalists mad at me because it was like they just thought I'm just finding out some nut job (laughs) <laughs> you know, that I'm going to use to represent their position, you know, to just yeah. make them look bad. And most of your IFB that's pre-trib and pro-Israel, at least the ones that I've been around, the ones that I'm trying to reach, they completely disregard that. So um, I don't, yeah, I don't really like messing with those people because um, I just, I think they're kind of hopeless personally. Right. We're, we're trying to reach our brothers and sisters, you know, right. the, those preachers, those teachers, those scholars that we love and respect, our brothers and sisters that are dispensationalists. You know, unfortunately, they've been sucked in, into that unbiblical system, but they are brothers and sisters. They have a lot of good teachings. And even they look to these, uh, you know, hyper dispies, I guess we can call them as just being way out there, you yeah. know, just being completely heretical and um Okay, well, this has been very thorough, uh, Pastor. I, I think I've got time here. I'm going to try and uh, wrap it up at the two-hour mark. And already we got people you know, saying that this has been a blessing. A lot of uh, questions that they've had have been answered. Because <laughs> the way I see it, when I see a dispensationalist debate, a hyper-dispensationalist, it's kind of like Pepsi versus Coke. You know, They're both wrong. But the way that you're refuting hyper dispensationalism tonight that's the right way to do it you know that's the way and i can see it in the chat too because we have some a lot of dispensationalists and i'm really not seeing any strong objections or arguments and the ones that i have seen you've you've sufficiently dealt with so right I, yeah and let me so just say now you know respond to this too yeah i have messed with the ruckmanites in the past and you know what all right i have sufficiently showed showed the crowd that i'm from that they are nut jobs that they should have nothing to do with. And guess what? They're not using the Ruckmanites anymore. Yeah, so, so, if, so the thing is mission accomplished and, and, and <laughs> I don't want, and I don't want to continue doing it because then I'm beating a dead horse. And if I do that, then I'm just going to, I'm going to look like a jerk. So yeah, I've, let's just say I have messed with the Ruckmanites and we took care of business <laughs> and uh, we're moving on we're moving on to more normal people. So <laughs> that's the best way to put it. Yeah. I've watched and studied your series, just absolutely dismantling the Ruckmanites. And I looked for some, uh, you know, some sufficient rebuttals from that side. I never found any. So uh, I, I would can't. say, you know, mission accomplished, uh, brother. Um, okay. So before we wrap it up, I really wanted to get this question in. Um, chat's flying. Hopefully I didn't mo- lose it. Uh right here and again i appreciate your time this is okay you know i I can't find it but i i I remember what it was so in light of everything you've been saying is it accurate to say because we'll see a lot of your dispensationalist pre-tribulation rapturists will say okay basically israel's on the shelf currently and it's the church that's in focus you know we're in the times of the gentiles Mm -hmm. but once the pre-tribulation rapture occurs god is now back to dealing with 
Israel. And there's going to be some mass conversion of national Israel in the end times. Is there any biblical truth to this, uh, Pastor? No. Uh, what they do, they go to Old Testament scriptures that, again, were fulfilled uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Most of their scriptures are going to use, they're going to go uh, to those passages. So, you know, the and then what they, you know, so it's like, again, there are things that have changed um, with the New Testament. That's why it's called a better covenant with better promises, with, uh, you know, better mediator, better sacrifices. I mean, the word better is used over and over again in Hebrews. So there are things that are going to be fulfilled that were promised in the book of Acts, but they're actually going to be fulfilled in a better way. Now, a lot of people are still looking for them to just be fulfilled with Jews, but no, actually they're going to be fulfilled with Jews and Gentiles, with all those who are of faith. That's not God breaking his promise. That's better. It'd be like if, if I promise you $50, but I give you 500 instead. I didn't break my promise. You know, I've kept my promise and then some. And so that's how it is with God. They're, but they're demanding that God fulfill it in a specific way that you just can't find in the scripture. So there, I, I will say this, there is nothing in the new Testament that anybody's even trying to use except for maybe a few verses in Romans 11 to show God going back to Israel. And, and what they do with Romans 11 is they go to the part where Paul is quoting uh, Jeremiah where it says, out of Zion will come deliver that shall turn on godliness away from Jacob. And then they act like, well, that's still coming to the future. I mean, it's future tense. But he, it's future tense because he's doing a quote from the Old Testament. Peter, at the end of Acts 3, said it already happened. That God sent Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning every one of you from his iniquities. So that was fulfilled at, you know, at the uh, death of Jesus Christ. That's when he turned on godliness away from Jacob, but they act like Jesus has got to come back. And some are even teaching an, an, the new covenant is still to come that Jeremiah talked about. No, the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about, I don't want to go off in, into this too much, but the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied very specifically in Daniel chapter nine, if you read the first 23 verses that nobody ever wants to read, Daniel understands by reading Jeremiah the things about the covenant. It's the new the new covenant in Jeremiah. Daniel understood uh, the things that were coming for Jerusalem, and included in there was um, he he knew it was all going to come within seventy weeks, within that four hundred and ninety years. The covenant, all those things that were promised, were going to come in that time period. That covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, Daniel specifically said it was going to happen within that 70-week time frame. That has come and gone. And so, um, no, there is not this big restoration for Israel coming. You want to know when many of those um, prophecies that people go to in the Old Testament were fulfilled? You want to know when God did the great, you know what, you want to know when the great revival in Israel came? It was on Pentecost. When 3,000 people got saved one day and then 5,000 people got saved later and multitudes are getting saved after that. Guess where that was? That was in Israel. Go read Acts chapter 1 through 9. It's all Jews getting saved. God did a great revival amongst the Jews, amongst Israel. Now, 
said as a whole, they didn't completely repent. Um, boy, not trying to open up an, an, another subject, but this is, I, I encourage people to go and listen to my series in the book of Acts. One thing that people are missing out on, I think I covered this pretty in depth in Acts 2, is in Acts, when they were preaching to Israel, when they're preaching repentance to Israel, it's very important people understand not only are they teaching personal repentance for salvation, but they were also preaching national repentance because Israel at a, as a nation, they were in danger of great judgment for killing the Messiah. They understood the prophecies that were given in Daniel about the desolations of Jerusalem. Jesus told them that in that generation, all the blood from Abel to Zacharias was going to come on that generation. They understood judgment was coming and they needed to, as a nation, repent in order to be spared that judgment. So when Peter preached at Pentecost, every one of those people who got saved, they went to heaven when they died. But Israel as a whole never repented of their sin of killing Jesus, of, of rejecting him and crucifying him. And as a result, they were judged. 70 AD, they got wiped out. They got what was coming to them because they never repented as a nation. But you know what? A remnant believed on Christ uh, and a great revival took place. And then that remnant went and they spread the gospel through the whole world. Amen. But for some reason, they're looking for another one. It, it already happened. You know, so uh, and it happened with people that were, you know, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Nobody even knows what tribe they're from now. And Israel's not even a thing anymore. What's so over there today is a is a creation of the U.N., it is the it is a another manifestation of a movement of antichrist of the beast system, and I believe it will come to full fruition uh, after they rebuild the temple, and the and the man of sin is revealed. That is not Israel that is over there. That right. is that is a, a movement of antichrist that have the names of blasphemy on them because they're taking the names of God, the things of God, the name of His people and they are placing it upon themselves. They have not they have not been put in place by God. They have not been called out by God. And they uh those people are rejectors of Christ and they are under the judgment of God. You know, I, I like to say if if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not part of the club. Okay, because neither Jew or Gentile, you know, we're all one in Jesus Christ. I like what you said. All you got to do is a little bit of research into World War One, the League of Nations, World War II, the United Nations, and the Balfour Declaration, and you'll quickly see that 1948 was not a miracle of God. So, mm -hmm. um, no, it, there there was nothing miraculous about it. Go read um, what the UN put out when it became a nation. It was one of those things they just kind of declared it and. People didn't really know what was going on. Nothing dramatic happened. You know, no, nothing, nothing really changed. And, you know, and it's still, it's been a mess, you know, ever since. It, it's an absolute mess over there. And it's, it doesn't even resemble anything that we see in the book of Jeremiah. It doesn't resemble anything that was prophesied. That stuff was already fulfilled a long time ago. 
Right. That's a great response. Well, you know what, Pastor McMurtry, I'm going to sneak this last question in because looking at my document, I basically got in all the questions and even the ones I didn't get in, we got in through the audience because we had a lot of audience engagement. Mm -hmm. I'll keep a mental note of uh, maybe some of the minor questions that came in that we didn't get a chance to get to. And hopefully we can do a part two. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's going to be feedback and we can always address it there. And I've got a ton of questions to ask you on pre-tribulationism, mm -hmm. Pastor. So I'd love to do a show on that. Okay. So the final question is, and this one specifically comes to mind because I personally engaged in a, in a formal debate with one of these hyper dispensationalist Ruckmanite types. He's a pre-tribulation rapturist. And he argued that Matthew 24, 13 has to do with salvation by faith plus works with Israel in, in the tribulation, because it says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So they'll say salvation in the tribulation period is basically through works through endurance, through faithfulness, basically a work salvation. So the question is, is that really what Matthew 24, 13 is teaching, Pastor? No. That's what happens when you just use a concordance or e-sword or something to do your Bible study. You just like look up all the passages that say saved and then just read those and ignore context. But saved is not always talking about soul salvation. You can get saved from a fire by a fireman. Not saved from hell, but saved from a burning building. And right here, it's been talking about tribulation. It's been talking about persecution. That, that's what it's talking about. And when it says he shall, shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Well, later it says, except those days should be short and there should no flesh be saved. It's just talking about physical salvation. There's a lot of places in the Bible where it talks about physical salvation and it uses the word saved. It uses the word salvation. The apostle Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And people say, that's about soul salvation. No, it's not. Because Paul, earlier in that book too, he had told them that their prayers for him was going to work to his salvation. So was Paul not saved? Did Paul get saved because they prayed for him? No, saved from prison. His life saved because they were under intense persecution during that time. And so it Paul is telling these people to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. It's okay if you are being persecuted to try to save yourself. And But that doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. I might be able to save myself from the government, but I can't save myself from hell. You know, I got to have I got to have Jesus for that. And a fireman can save me from a burning building but he can't save me from hell. So this is people just taking a word and then applying whatever definition they want to it. You got to show me in this passage where this is talking about soul salvation. He's talking about physical persecution. He says in the same passage, except those days should be short and should no flesh be saved. To me, that clarifies it, what he's talking about, if anything. And you know what? When the rapture comes, I'm going to be saved. If I, if I survive, if I can survive to the rapture, okay, when the Antichrist is trying to kill all the saints, then guess what? Jesus will save me on that day, physically. But I'm, I'm already, I've already got soul salvation. So that is just foolish. That is an example of people have already decided there's a different way to get saved in the tribulation and the new dispensation. Now let's go find a passage that says it. Oh, here we go. 
Absolutely not. Not even close. Right. It's it's basically trying to it, it's circular reasoning. They're trying to prove their starting point, even though their starting points non-biblical. There's a fancy way of calling this fallacy. It's the illegitimate totality transfer fallacy where they see a word and then they assume it always means the same thing. So they see the word saved and they assume, well, that always must mean, you know, saved from heaven or, or hell, saved to heaven or, or saved from hell. Like when Peter said, you know, save me. Was that when he got saved positionally? No, he was drowning. He wanted to be saved physically. And, and I find it amazing, too, with these guys, because the context of Matthew 24, as, as you've described so many times, especially in your sermons, is how no flesh would be saved. And if we can make our way to the end of those days, what days? The Great Tribulation. Then we'll be caught up. We'll be saved physically because, you know, th that's a time of glorification is one way to well, understand and, it. And that goes for saved and lost people, too, because we have wars. We have famines, we have pestilences, we have earthquakes. If that stuff just went on forever, everyone would die. Right, right. So, you know, saved and lost, but it's not going to last forever. You know, those days are going to cut short. There is going to be a remnant that's going to be saved, you know, and so um, saved from that. So that's, that's what that's about. So they literally have nothing there, but yet that is a, a cornerstone verse. Yeah. for these people. And I'm I'm seems like the words out on it, but I don't know how anyone is still trying to use that verse to prove faith plus works in that dispensation. Now there's people today who believe you can lose your salvation today and they will they will use that verse too. Oh yeah. You know, most of mm -hmm. your dispensationalist Baptist ones understand we have eternal security now, but not during that time. No. There's always eternal security. Well, the passage literally says for the elect's sake, those mm. days will be shortened. Because like you put it, the mass persecution of the Antichrist, you know, basically the devil's wrath. Yeah. If, if those days were allowed to be continued, no flesh would be saved. And and there has to be someone for Jesus to rapture. Otherwise, that wouldn't be able to be fulfilled. So, you know, how many are going to be alive, are going to be alive and remain when Jesus comes? I have no idea, but there's going to be some who are alive and remain. Right. Amen. Well said. Well, you know what? That was a an epic dismantling of, I would say, the hyper persuasion of dispensationalism and dispensationalism in general. I love doing these live because we can interact with the chat, address objections and questions. So I do want to thank the audience for sticking around the whole time. We are over two hours. Time has flown by. Pastor, you've done an excellent job. So I, I want to hand it to you. Any final words, final thoughts? And thanks again so much for doing this. This really was uh, an awesome show. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no, um, just, you know, by all means, you know, if you have other questions, things that didn't get addressed, uh, you know, the more I'm challenged on this, the more it ends up strengthening my position. And, um, man, I have gotten so much from this study through the book of acts. I would encourage people to go to my channel and check out my series on the book of acts. Um, I mean, we're not leaving any stone unturned. Um, I, I don't know how anybody could, you know, hear what I'm saying on there and still be a dispensationalist. And, um, so, you know, check those things out. And if you have any questions, you know, let us know. I mean, maybe we can do a follow-up on this because I do think it's very important and it is, it's, it's creating brick walls and there are something else we could talk about. There are a number of subjects that I'm just beginning to explore. You know, it's like now that I've broken down these walls, um, I've just, I, there, there's certain 
there's certain doctrines and teachings that are all over the Bible that nobody's talking about. And it's because you can't understand these things if you're dispensational. But and and while I I'm learning a lot of these things, I don't feel like I have a full grasp on all of it, but I do think there's a lot to be talked about and uh I think that uh you know uh, the more we dump this dispensational stuff behind us. And I still find some of it in me sometimes where it's like, I'll be saying, I'll be teaching something that doesn't completely make sense. Then I'm like, where did I get that? And it's like, Oh, you know what? That's, <laughs> that's Larkin Schofield junk. And we, right. and the more of it, I, more of it, I get rid of the more clear the Bible is to me. Yes, you're absolutely right. You know, once you realize basically what a fraud dispensationalism and pre-tribulation rapturism is, it opens a whole new world and such a far greater understanding of, of the Bible. So again, great final words and final points. Uh, Pastor Tommy will definitely do a part two and probably add a lot more in terms of the uh, pre-tribulation topic into it as well. So again, thank you so much to the audience. Thanks for tuning in. Share this content around. The truth is important. This is such an important topic. And and I heard some people asking in the live chat. Yes, Pastor uh, McMurtry's link to his YouTube channel, which I highly recommend. He's got some fantastic sermons on this topic, is linked in the description box. So go, go give that a subscription and uh, check out his video. So with that being said, Sam for Truth is out.